Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. Dubbed Zimbabwe's answer to Zadie Smith by cultural magazine The Skinny, the multi-talented and energetic Patina Gapper is a prize-winning author with three law degrees, including one from Cambridge University, who works as an international trade lawyer in Geneva. In 2009, she won the Guardian First Book Prize for her short story collection, An Allergy for an Easterly, and has now published her debut novel, The Book of Memory. Bettina talks with Bianca Zander about writing, social justice, and juggling a high-flying career with creative pursuits. We hope you enjoy this session. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Auckland Writers Festival session, A Zest for Life, with Bettina Gapa. I'm Bianca Zander, also a novelist, and today the asker of questions. The structure of today's session will be a conversation between Patina and myself, which will include a brief reading, followed by a short time at the end for questions from the audience. I would like to acknowledge the support of Platinum Patron, the Wallace Foundation, for the visit of Patina Gapa to New Zealand. Before we go any further, I must remind you to switch off your cell phones. Anyone failing to comply will swiftly be locked up in Zimbabwe's Chikarubi prison (laughs) for approximately the next 27 years, or until the Mugabe administration has been toppled. So that's 36 years, another 36 years. We'll work out the details later. (laughs) Okay, I'll start with an introduction to this wonderful writer. Patina Gapa was born in 1971 in Zambia, but moved to what was then white-ruled Rhodesia when she was two. She grew up in Zimbabwe during the turbulent years of independence and the establishment of the Mugabe regime in 1980, before leaving to go overseas to study law at Cambridge University and the University of Graz in Austria. I believe she has a doctorate in law. For many years, she worked as an international trade lawyer in Geneva before publishing her debut book of short stories, An Elegy for Easterly, in 2009. Described as a scathing picture laced with comic resignation of a Zimbabwe in meltdown, it promptly won the Guardian Best First Book Award, establishing her as a bold new literary voice. In 2015, she released her follow-up, The Book of Memory, The novel tells the story of an albino woman, Nemosine, or Memory, who was on death row in Zimbabwe's Chikarubi prison, charged with the murder of her white adopted father, Lloyd. Anita Sethi in The Observer described the book as a moving novel about memory that unfolds into one about forgiveness and a passionate paean to the powers of language. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you will join me at this afternoon in welcoming Patina Gapa to the stage of the Auckland Writers Festival. Patina, I wondered if you would start today with a bit of a taste from the Book of Memory. Thank you so much, Bianca. I'm so sorry. I think I'm giving my back to the people in this side of the room. It's, it's not intentional. It's just the way the room is set up. But thank you so much, all of you, for coming to this talk. When you really should be in church. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is Sunday, after all. Yeah. <laughs> You're all going to hell. 
But, um, <laughs> um, so I'm going to just read a very small section from where memory has now moved from Fakose, which is a township in Harare where she wa was born. And she's now living in an area in Harare called Winsdale, which is very, very posh. But it's posh in the Zimbabwean sense, which means it's colonial posh. Yep. Right? More English than English. Not even that. It's, it's an idea of what England is yep. um, that is held by people who've never been to England. Yes. Yeah. We suffer from that here sometimes. <laughs> The early years also come to me with the sounds of the 80s. Lloyd and I listened to cassette tapes by Fleetwood Mac and Depeche Mod. I hear Take On Me, Personal Jesus, as we drive under the umbrella trees on our approach to Nyanga, to Mutare to stay at La Roche, to Matopos to stand on top of the world, and to Manapur to track elephants, or at least for Lloyd and Alan to track the elephants while I read in the tent or listen to salt and pepper on my Walkman. Alan Milhouse often accompanied us on our trips outside the city. He was Lloyd's best friend. On these trips, he and Lloyd shared a room while I had my own. Alan was a man of quick enthusiasm. He spoke of the boiler at Lloyd's cottage in Nyanga with such passion that he might have invented it. Though Lloyd was far from being a recluse, in the gregarious Winsdale set, with his endless round of cocktail parties, brides and sundowners, cricket and tennis and polo parties, he was considered something of a hermit. Alexandra, his sister, always tried to introduce him to women. She pulled together an impressive list of divorcees who all seemed, curiously, to be real estate agents. And single women who were usually farmers' daughters called Debbie or Cheryl, Sheila or Tracy, or jolly hockey sticks type teachers with firm handshakes and fatal attraction hair. <laughs> I think you'll agree that gives us a, a wonderful taste of the humour that um, Patina loves to employ in her writing. Patina, um, memory ends up in Tikarubi prison for a very long time. You tried to visit the prison, but authorities made it hard for you. Can you tell us what happened? So to be fair, they didn't really make it hard for me. They just presented me with a catch-22. They, um, they asked me to sign the Official Secrets Act, right, which meant that I couldn't actually write about what I saw. So I had the choice of going to the prison and not writing about it or talking about it in any way, or not going to the prison and imagining the prison. So mm -hmm. I chose not to visit uh, because it meant that if I'd gone, I really couldn't have written about it. Sure. Yeah. So it's an invented yeah. version. It's, yeah. it's, it's, an inc it's an incredible place, Jikurubi. It's, a, it's, a, it's the maximum security prison in, in Zimbabwe. We had people like Kevin Woods, you know, the apartheid spy, yeah. who served a very long prison sentence there. So it really is a maximum security prison. At the same time, it also has the, within it the largest um, women's prison. Mm -hmm. So it has this maximum security um, status and at the same time, it, there are a lot of women who are in there for abortion and right. for, being you know, for being caught uh, on the street, uh, right. prostituting themselves. Yep. So it's, it's a weird kind of mix Mixture. of very you know, high <coughs> offences like treason and very sort of low-level offences. Yeah. Yeah. And where did the idea come from um, to write about an albino prisoner in particular? That's characteristic of hers. Do you know, it's... It's, it's something really strange that when I started to write this 
novel back in 2007, I think it was, she was always an albino woman. And I think I wanted to use the idea of the albino, I had all these lofty ideas about, you know, a, a novel about race that wasn't about race. You know, I thought it was yeah. a clever way of um, addressing the race color question in Zimbabwe, uh, looking at somebody who looked white but didn't have the privilege of whiteness. Yeah. And at the same time, who was black but didn't actually look black. But it just got really lost somewhere in those, uh, in those years of writing about it. And in the end, her albinism, the character's albinism, was to me a way of showing that she had a visible something on her that made her family believe a particular thing about her. Right. I'm afraid I can't tell yep. you what it is because I would give it away. Um, we could say perhaps it involves superstition. It involves superstition, yeah. yeah, exactly. So she needed to have something about her that was visible, that was a visible manifestation of what the family believed um, was a curse that was really haunting their family. And yet that must have been quite hard to write about because it is such a visual thing that you're describing. Um, did you feel like you had to remind readers all the time that she was different? Not really, because, you know... Um, the difficulty for me came when I started thinking of this book as... I started thinking of it from the perspective of people who might read it and accuse me of, you know, writing an inauthentic character because I wasn't that myself. But then I, I remembered that, you know, fiction is, you know, imagination. Mm -hmm. You know, I've written in the voices of men, I've written in the voices of white people, I've written in the voices of children. You know, I'm not a child anymore, you know, at least in some ways I'm still a child. But, you know, fiction is an act of the imagination. So once I got um, around that fear of um, being accused of not writing, of, of writing about someone that I was not, I was able to just write about a very interesting, I think I hope, a very interesting woman who happens to have this condition. Yes, yeah. right. And one of the things um, we do as novelists is present evidence to build a case for or against a character. So I wondered, you know, whilst writing the book of memory, if you, if you drew on your skills as a lawyer, both um, in the case that memory faces, but also in the structure. Mm. The, the structure of the novel is that she is writing to a woman that we never really learn much about, a woman called Melinda Carter, who's a journalist, and she's writing the story of her life. Um, and she's writing the story of her life because she wants to um, use that narrative as part of the appeal against the, uh, the death sentence that's been imposed on her. And so you're absolutely right that there's a kind of a layering of a story and a sort of a, a revelation, a slow revelation of evidence. But at the same time, I really w didn't want it to be a loyally book. So that's why I, I deliberately made her a historian, which is my secret passion. I really want to be a historian. Um, so I wanted to avoid too much legalese, too much of the law. So in a way, I was kind of writing against myself. I had to restrain myself a lot in in how much legal knowledge um, and legal language I, I gave to her. Yes. But you're absolutely right. It, it is a form of, it's, it's a document that slowly reveals evidence that is, you know, that may be used for a, for a trial. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, and both your careers um, involve a lot of international travel. So I wanted to ask where and when you find time to write. <laughs> <laughs> um, Hotel since, rooms? Since I had my son 12 years ago, I haven't slept. You know? <laughs> I know what that feels like. Yeah. 
they were just talking about your little one keeping yeah. you up last night. Yeah. Um, you know, I I'm not as uh, efficient as Margaret Thatcher, you know, who <laughs> who is who yeah. got by on four hours of sleep, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Um, she that's why she was so cranky, I think. Yeah. But. <laughs> I don't need a lot of sleep, which is very yeah. fortunate for me. I think I can get by on five, six hours. Mm-hmm. So I tend to write in the morning. Mm-hmm. I write in the morning before I go, I go to work. And then in the evening, I will maybe revise what I've written in the morning. And then, of course, I don't have a social life. I, I live on Facebook and you know, Twitter. That's my, that's my but social how, life. But your job is incredibly demanding. How do you do that? I, I can't even fathom how you would... I mean, that's like having three different jobs that you fit into one day. Yeah, so I mean, during the day, I, I basically work during the day. You know, mm. I start work at, well, we live in Europe, so we start work between sort of 9 and 10. Gentleman's um, hours. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then we finish at about 7. And then, so in, it's that, that early morning, uh, mm. around 5, 6, that's when I do my, my writing. Yeah. And you know, if you follow the Graham Greene method, you can actually get a lot done. You can write a novel in three months. So tell me about yeah. this method. He used to write 500 words a day. Yes. And if he, stop, if he reached his 500 words in the middle of a sentence, he would stop. Mm-hmm. So, so if, he, you know, if, if he was writing, um, Bianca got up and went to the... He would, he stop, would stop there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he would stop at the... And then the next day he would, he would, he would pick up and say, kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like how I write anyway. I'm always inter- being interrupted by something. Um, so, you know, jobs that involve that much international travel are not easy to combine with family life. How have you managed to, to do that on top of everything else? Oh, my, my son has been an absolute boon. I mean, he took himself to boarding school last year. Yeah. <laughs> so, ah, oh, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, I miss him terribly. That's Don't get me wrong. Col- that's part of the colonial experience <laughs> too, isn't it? <laughs> No, you know, my, my son is uh, he's a very talented cricketer, and it's yes. something we discovered when we, when we lived in... We moved to Zimbabwe for three years, and we discovered uh, while we were there that he's a very, very talented cricketer, mm-hmm. and he actually was good enough to, you know, be chosen for the junior team and so on. Um, then we moved to Switzerland, and he joined a club yeah. with very lovely boys, but they never won anything. Oh. And then he said, oh, were mommy, you know, I would quite like to win, <laughs> you know. Um, and so he, we, we've, uh, we found a lovely school in Scotland and he was very happy to go there. We did a, the whole taster weekend thing and, and he's there now. And I hadn't realised, because he's an only kid, I hadn't realised how lonely that must have been. Because yeah. now he's in a dorm with you know, three other boys exactly the same age. Yeah, like They're obsessed board. with Minecraft. <laughs> yeah. And they've got this thing about the Illuminati. Did you know yeah. this? No, no. Kids that age, they believe that the world is in the control of the Illuminati. And, and they keep finding these symbols everywhere. Where has that come from? I have no idea. Yeah. I have no idea. Who's running Minecraft? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so you must spend a lot of time in Scotland then? I spend a lot of time in Edinburgh. It's really become my absolute favourite city in, yeah. in, in, in the UK. I love it. What it's, do you do uh, when you're there? I, I see Kush, I see my son, uh, we, we have now our, sort of an, our Edinburgh haunts, our yep. little restaurants that we go to, and I spend a lot of time in the National Library of Scotland because of a certain novel about a certain Scottish man that I'm writing. Aha, so, yeah. yes, yes, well, <laughs> more on that later. Um, so in the Book of Memory, um, Memo returns repeatedly to the books of her childhood, mm. many of them the English and American classics, looking for comfort and a sense of wonder. What part did reading play in your childhood? 
Reading was everything to me. It was everything. You know, I moved from um, a township school, just 1979, 1980. Um, Rhodesia was segregated uh, in terms of education. Government schools were segregated. So my first two years of primary school were in a township school, and we had no books, we had nothing. Mm -hmm. We used to have something called hot seating, which meant that my class went to school at 11 in the morning, and we sat under a tree waiting for our classroom to empty out. So the 48 kids who went to school in the morning would leave at 12, and then we would take over the classroom. So right. we shared a classroom. So we had, we had nothing, I mean nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the first time I actually saw a library was in 1980, when yes. we moved from the township to the suburb. I could not believe it. Yeah. Not only did the school have a library, yeah. The classroom had its own library. Mm -hmm. And then just down the road in Maybourne, where we lived, was the Queen Victoria Memorial Library. So that was like three libraries. Yeah. I went absolutely crazy. I was one of the few kids who were actually banned from the library at one point. Yes. Because I wasn't doing any schoolwork. <laughs> you know, and I'd be reading under my desk and, you know. And then one time I, got, I almost got run over because I used to walk and read at the same time. I was deep in the sea of adventure and a car almost hit me. Yeah. Um, so books were everything to me, and I read every book in the Queen Victoria Memorial Library. You hear a lot in of the writers say section. that. But I, okay, it was a very small it, library, but still. <laughs> I think I went through a similar yeah. phase. And then I remember I read, um, I, I calculated that I read about 500 of the 600 or so books that Enid Blyton wrote. Ah, uh, yes. I just, but I couldn't stand Noddy. Yeah. I mean, Noddy was just, no, no, it was no. a bridge too yeah. far for yeah. me. <laughs> But everything else, and you know, all the old-fashioned novels. Uh, you know, I, I, I look at uh, you know lovely people in their fifties and the sixties and seventies, and their childhood is my childhood in terms of yes, reading. It's the same. You know, Malcolm Savile. Mm -hmm. You know, the Lone Pine Five, uh, the Bobsy Twins. Yes. You know, yeah. I was listening to Gloria Steinem talking about the Bobsy Twins, and I thought she's eighty-two. Yeah. <laughs> That's my childhood. Yeah. No, because you have to understand that you know, Rhodesia was under sanctions for a long time. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the books that were in that library, you know, books basically stopped coming in, in 1965. Frozen in time, <laughs> yeah. yeah. A lot of stuff was frozen in time. The fashion was frozen in time, yeah. you know, yeah. as well as the books. So I, I had a very, you know, very English um, yeah. sense of what reading was, yes. you know. Yeah, yeah. and I, I see also um, in the Book of Memory a nod to the works of Thomas Hardy. Would that be right? I love Thomas Hardy. Yeah. Gosh, he was a grim... No, he was, uh, he, he, was, he, was, uh, he was an extraordinary, extraordinary writer. And in a way, I, I wish I'd thought more about Thomas Hardy before I started writing even an elegy for Italy, because what I would have loved to do is to create a fictitious suburb in Harare mm -hmm. and people it with, you know, um, or a fictitious rural areas, you know, like his uh, Wessex that, that yes. he... What was it called? Wessex or uh, I can't. Yes, yes. Wessex, right? Yeah. yeah, Because he created his, you know, his own map yeah. of, of of England, you know, with Casterbridge here and um, all these other different cities. And I wish I had had done that, you know. But uh, in many ways, I I became a writer before I'd really thought about what kind of writer I wanted to be. But I do love Hardy very much. That makes me want to ask you. Um, you know, you write about. Zimbabwe, you know, warts and all, mm. and, and sometimes a very, you know, scathing way. Mm. And yet you've actually worked for the government 
there, haven't you, for the, for the Ministry of Culture? No, I haven't actually worked for the government. I, I was on the board of the National Arts Council yes. and on the board of the Harare City Library. But that was under the Unity Government. Right. I was appointed by the MDC Minister right. of Education. Yeah. Um, but more recently, I was actually nominated by the government, this government of Zimbabwe, to be Zimbabwe's nominee um, for a position in the World Trade Organization. And it's a curious thing, I think, because I, I don't write from a, a place of, um, I don't have an agenda. I'm not a politician, and I'm, I'll never be a politician. And also, I write novels, these little yeah. things. Yeah. Who cares about novels? Nobody reads novels. You know, newspaper articles and so on, that's, that's much more alarming, I think, mm. to the regime. Um, but there's also a twisted kind of pride Right. Because, you know, I've you know, flown the flag high and, you know, I appear in the newspapers and all that kind of thing. So there's a kind of pride as well that yeah. people ha associate with me. Uh, but I think ultimately it's also because I'm, I'm very critical of, of everyone. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm just as critical now of the MDC as I, as I am of, of ZANU-PF. So I think that sort of protects me and that yeah. gives me a little bit of, um, you know, um, bubble wrap, I guess. And so yeah. no, no one's ever said anything to you, or you, you've never feared I mean, any I've, repercussions. I've appeared in, in, you know, in, in the newspaper as today's Judas Iscariot, with my <laughs> smiling face, you know, next to the headline. But it's, it's as far as it goes. Yeah. No, no one has ever hassled me or anything like that. And is that evidence too of the Zimbabwean ability to laugh at oneself as well? That too. But I think it's it's much more basic than that. I mean, Zanu PF has always used violence very strategically. I mean, I'm not a threat to anyone. I'm right. not trying to take over anything. I'm just, I'm just writing, you know. Um, I did once uh, think of starting a satirical column in the voice of Grace Mugabe because she's such a fantastic character to write. But um, I thought that might be a bridge too far. Yeah, yeah. So you've self-censored there. Um, I'd like to, I'd like to pick up a thread with you that has run through a few other sessions in the festival. Um, Hanya Yanahegara was asked about her relentless depictions of sexual abuse. And Marlon James was asked about his graphic depictions of sex and violence. And both writers saw it as a kind of duty to bear witness, to not look away. But the results are often um, too much to bear for some readers. When, when horrible things happen in your novels, and they do, how do you decide how far to go? Where do you, where do you draw that line for yourself? That, that's such an excellent question. Um, I, I think at heart I'm a wimp. I really am. I'm, I'm very squeamish. Mm. And I'm also quite prudish as well. You know? mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm never going to have a, a graphic sex scene, for instance, of any yeah. kind, whether it's violent sex or consensual sex. Um, for one thing, I don't really want to be nominated for the Bad Sex Award. You know that, that award, right. But also, I just, I, I just feel very strongly that some things are best left to the imagination of the reader. You know, um, I, I can't stand these new police procedurals that they're doing. Um, I'm thinking in particular of, uh, of The Fall, which started out very promisingly, because I love Gillian Anderson mm -hmm. and Jamie Dornan, the um, a Northern Irish. It's set, it's set in Northern Ireland, and it's about um, a police, a policewoman who's tracking a serial killer, mm -hmm. and they're two powerful actors. But you know, it's all these beautiful women who are being cut up and, and put on slabs and so on. I don't know. I just think that's that's a level of violence that I, as a viewer, don't want to see. Mm -hmm. 
And I feel the same way about some books that, you know, maybe this is a little bit... There's a book I read when I was very young, and I wish... I can't forget it. I wish I had not read it. It's called Let's Go Play at the Adams. Mm. It's one of the most horrible, horrible things I've ever read. Yeah. About a bunch of kids, you know, uh, teenagers and preteens who kidnap a babysitter and do unspeakable things to her. And those unspeakable things are described. Mm -hmm. And I learned subsequently that the man who wrote it ended up an alcoholic and he never really wrote anything else. Mm -hmm. Because I think there's some things that are just so horrible to imagine. I, I you know, I'm, I'm a wimp and I really respect Hanya and, and Marlon yeah. and, but I could never write in the way that they do. Yeah, I Look, couldn't. I thought it was interesting um, that Marlon James also um, touched on this idea that he was more squeamish and prudish as a person than he mm. was as a writer. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of writers would say that. Um, there's, there's a kind of pleasure that comes from writing as, as almost vivisection, you know, just the, the pure act of writing and describing something in such detail. Do, do you the, think some writers get carried away? Have you ever...? You know, there, there are two things that I wrote which I, I can never read in public. One of them is, um, I mean, it's not a secret that Lloyd Hendricks dies, right? Um, so I'm not giving anything away when I say that the, the scene that describes the death is something that I found very difficult to read. Mm -hmm. um, very difficult to write, but very, very difficult to read once I'd written it. Mm -hmm. To the point where I'm not even sure that I, it was copy edited uh, by me properly because I just couldn't read it mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. And then in my first book, um, An Elegy for Easterly, there's a very gruesome scene where um, one of the characters gives birth um, and another character help, has to help her. And it's, it's not really graphic in any way, but I just find it difficult to read. Um, so if I did go to that place, if I did manage to push myself to that place, I would find it very difficult to actually go back there by reading you know, passages from it mm. and so on. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It wouldn't desensitize you, the act of writing itself. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm just not that kind of writer. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and I really, like I said, I really respect and admire those who can go to that place, but I know that I, I definitely can't do yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I'd like to talk a bit about um, what I call difficult second novelitis. I think we've both suffered from that recently. Um, in your case, you say that you suffered terribly from imposter syndrome after the success of your first novel. How did you get over it? Who says I got over it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you live to write another novel, so I'm assuming you did um, in some way. <laughs> you know, I, it took me... I, I was only... I was what? I was 37 when I was first published. Uh, but I wrote every year of my life. I've been writing since I was 11. Right? I have piles and piles of things that I've written. Mm. Never finished, but I, I always wrote. And what it is is that I would read some of my favorite writers. You know, somebody, Song of Solomon is one of my favorite novels. I, you know, I'd read the opening of Song of Solomon and think, what's the, what's the point? Yeah. You know, why should I even try? Yeah. You know, why should I pollute the earth with bad writing when I can just enjoy Toni Morrison or Hilary Mantel or, you know, Jhumpa Lahiri? So I, I, I just didn't feel that I, I was good enough. But then something kept telling me, try, 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 try. And then I finally started reading these Paris, um, uh, Paris Review interviews yes. where everybody says the same thing, writing is rewriting. Yeah, nobody's first draft is good Exactly. Yeah. The Song of Solomon probably didn't look like that no, when Toni Morrison wrote it first, you know. So I thought, well, let me apply that 
And it's also the same way we write, we wrote judgments at work. You know, let me try and ap ap approach that, you know, my writing in that way. Writing is rewriting. And then I wrote my first short story in 2006 or so. It was reasonably well received by the people I sent it to. And then I started, you know. And then this book was actually an accident. It wasn't meant to happen, my first book. It was meant to be the little book that we're going to put out there while Patina finishes the book of memory. Ah, so that was already underway. Yeah, yeah. so it wasn't even, a, I had written 18 or so short stories. And then my agent said to me, just put them together and, you know, we can send it out there. Because everybody was excited about the book of memory. Right. Yeah. And it's a book that was bought on the basis of three chapters. Mm -hmm. It's one of those fairy tale stories mm -hmm. that's actually not a fairy tale when you're living it. No. Because no. then you've, you know, you've, you've been given some nice money. You've bought lots of Italian handbags. <laughs> <laughs> and there's still no novel. <laughs> and now you have to produce. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it was a very anxious time. Um, so, so then, and also this book came out and it was a success in a way that I hadn't expected it to be. You know, a writer at a festival once told me, oh, if you're a short story writer, you're lucky to sell 2,000 copies in your lifetime, you know? But it was such a, you know, modest uh, commercial success and a critical success. And in a way, it, it freaked me out even more. Yeah. Because that's when I started thinking, okay, now they're going to find me out. Now, you know, in this book of memory, now they're going to really see that I pulled the most spectacular con in publishing. Yeah. Now they're going to find me out. So, so it was that anxiety that kept me from, from actually writing. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, a little bit of um, imposter syndrome can be quite healthy and can spur you on to try harder. So it's not an unhealthy thing to suffer from. You know, I think I would rather still have my neurosis and my imposter syndrome than have the opposite of that, which is when you think everything you write is the shit. You're like, yeah, yeah. this is it. I'm the bomb. Yeah. I, I never want to be that person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can anyone think of any writers well, who might have I could, I could think of a few. <laughs> <laughs> you we know when, you, when you become so successful in. and you trade on your early success? Yeah. And then you end up just churning out stuff that's just not very good, but you're beyond editing in a yeah. way. Yeah. And when people tell you that the stuff is not very good, you're like, ah, you're just jealous. <laughs> 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 you know? So I think I would rather have my, you know, my current neurosis and my anxiety about my writing than have the, the arrogance of believing that everything I write is, is the bomb. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I also think that you know, there's two aspects to being a novelist. There's, there's the learning your craft, but then there's you know, learning to navigate the ups and downs of a writer's life. So you know, which, whether you have early success or not, there's always some aspect of it to navigate, isn't there? Yeah. It's, it's, no, that's so true. Um, for me, um, this, I, I'm learning. I mean, I'm, I'm learning as a writer. And in fact, the, the novel that I want to, that I think I was born to write, the one that I'm now writing, the David Livingstone, my, my, my David Livingstone novel, was the first thing that I started to write many, many, many years ago. Mm -hmm. But something just told me that I didn't have the tools to do it. Yeah. So I've been putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. But now I think, now is the moment where I feel I have to write this novel and I have to write it right now. But even there, I know that I, I, I still have a lot to learn for the next book yeah. and then the next book and the next book. And so what I want to do is to really to improve from book to book. Mm -hmm. I've just finished a book that I think, in my humble view, is you know, the best thing that I've written of the three books that I've written. 
Yeah. And writing that book was an absolute joy, you yeah. know. Uh, it's, it's another short story collection. So I want to have that feeling of, you know, challenging myself and pushing myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, I'm in love like everybody else at the festival. I'm completely in love with Michel Faber. And he said something wonderful, which was that I'm not in competition with anyone. I'm sort of in competition with myself. You know, you keep yeah. pushing yourself. Yep. to be better than your last book. Mm. And that's the kind of writer I want to be. At, at some point, you have to let go of those external validations and find another reason to Absolutely. do it. Absolutely. Yep. It's not about the prizes. It's not about the reviews. It's, not mm. about, it's about a sense of achievement that you bring to, mm. to, to, to your work. Yep. I, there's a great story. I, ha- I had these guys make a bed for me when I, when I was in Zimbabwe, four of them. You know, they, they made a beautiful wrought iron bed. And after, after, then they put it together and they stood back and said, yeah, basa se basa. Like, we've done a good job. Yeah. And you could really see the pride that they took in, mm-hmm. in, you know, in the work that they'd done. I want to have that basa yeah. se basa feeling, yes. you know? Yeah. 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 Although it's, it can be terribly elusive as a writer. But I think that's part of the beauty of it, that you're constantly reaching yeah. for it. Yeah. You, uh, you never actually achieve it, I don't think. Yeah. But you're constantly um, pursuing it. Um, it was Jeanette Winterson um, who gave a wonderful talk in here yesterday. I don't know if anyone went to it. Ma- magnificent. Um, she talked yesterday about um, something that can sometimes drive creative people crazy is the gap between um, how they feel about the work they do and how it's received in the outside world. Um, are, there any, are there any other writers that you can point to who you think offer a map to navigate that space? Mm. How do you mean offer a map to navigate? Well, how have you come to terms with that gulf between you know, how you feel about your own writing and, and when it leaves you and, and you send it out into the world? It's a hard question for me to answer because I've only written two books. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> so I feel a bit like a fraud talking about sending my work into the world. You know? But I, I have to say that the, the biggest surprise for me has been the reception of this book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when the Bailey's Prize people called to say, you've been long-listed, I thought it was my boss yeah. who had arranged a prank call. You know? <laughs> I, mean, I just could not believe it. So there's, there's this sense of disbelief that this book that I struggled to write for six years, yeah. a book that I have not read since the 19th of June, I can't read it again, I really can't. Yeah. And I'm not sure I'll ever be able to read it again because every passage reminds me of a you know, difficult point of, of writing it. So my sense is one of disbelief that this book that I really struggled with for so long is having this amazing reception in the world. Um, and with an energy for Italy, it was just sheer incredulity. You know, yeah. I just could not believe what was happening to me. Um, so I, I don't know. I really honestly can't answer that question because I'm still, I'm still really stunned. By it's <laughs> ongoing. Yeah, it's yeah. ongoing. Yeah. yeah. And um, so your, your third book is another collection of short stories yes. called It's Rotten called Rotten Row, Row yeah. which is a road in Zimbabwe. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, a ro- it's a road in Harare, which is famous for, for, for a number of things. It's, it's a road that leads up to the Kopi, mm-hmm. which is the little hill in Harare where the pioneers raised the, the Union Jack. Mm-hmm. It's also the road that leads to the ZANU-PF headquarters, mm-hmm. The, the party of our torture and pain. And it's also the road that leads to um, the Rotten Row Magistrates Complex. Mm-hmm. So it's a collection of stories that is about crime, mm-hmm. uh, the consequences of crime, 
um, why people commit crimes, what happens after people commit crimes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was a joy to write. It was an absolute joy to write. In fact, it's the longest book I've written. It's about 90,000 words, and it, it kept growing. Initially, there were 12 stories, then there were 14 stories, and now there are 20 stories. I've just really, really enjoyed it, and it's in the, I've written in so many different voices. Um, I've written in the voice of an aging Rhodesian hangman. I've written in the voice of a, of a pathologist. I had to brush up my medical knowledge. Um, it, it's just been a wonderful joy. Where does it come from, that ability to channel different voices like my that? My mother. Ah. Oh, yeah. yeah. My mother can mimic anyone. Yeah. Yeah, and my, my brother can do such a good impression of Mugabe. <laughs> um, actually, we should really use him to book, you know, restaurants and things, but nobody would believe it because, <laughs> you know, he never eats out, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I come from a family of mimics, um, all of us. And my son, Kush, he's 12, but he does a very good Donald J. Trump. Yeah. I'm going to build a wall across America. I mean, he does. I mean, I'm not a very good mimic when I speak. Uh, my mimicry comes out when I write. Yes. Um, but I, I come from a very talented family of actors. None of us are actually, you know, in, in the world of theater, but, you know, all of them really could have been. So that's, yeah. I think that's where I got my gift, really, from my mother. Yeah. yeah. One of my favorite characters in the book is Synodia. Um, is that how you say her name? Yes, yeah. Claudia. Yeah. Um, the way she speaks, putting a P in front yeah. of um, her words. So she says, Pwinglish, Pwinglish. Pwinglish, Pwinglish. When you hear Snodia, what kind of religion do you think she followed or her parents followed? What, is it, what does the name tell you about her family? I don't because know. that's the thing about Zimbabwean names. They're very revealing yeah. about the family. Yeah. So Snodia would have been born around the time of the, you know, the sign of the, the Catholic. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. It's, it's a Catholic name. Yeah. So I went to school with 400 uh, girls, um, St. Dominic's uh, boarding school. They were not very nice half the time, so I tend to use their names in, <laughs> in my book. You're a No, 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 I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm, I'm not really, not really. But there are these wonderful Catholic names like Snodia, uh, Conceptua, Conception, you know, um, and so Snodia in this, in, in, in this, in this novel is a, is a prison guard. Mm -hmm. And she, she puts the letter PW in front of words yeah. to mock the person who said them. Ah, right. So yeah. when memory, for instance, says, ah, we should get an education, she will say pre-education, pre-education. Right. You know, right. so it's kind of a mockery. Mm. Yeah. And is that based on a real person that you've heard? It's just, it's just the way some people speak yeah. in Zim. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's the one thing. I, I'm afraid you might, you might not really get it uh, because you don't, you don't know the, 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 the patterns of speech, but one of the things I really try to, to do in my writing is to actually reproduce how people speak, mm. because I'm very conscious of how, of how people speak, mm. yeah. And you write in Shona in the book as well. Yes, exactly. So that is, I feel like there's, there's quite a bit I missed. No, no, but you, do, you don't really miss anything by not understanding the Shona, because mm. I write in a way that I translate the shona within yes, the sentence, right. so you yeah. don't actually miss a thing. Yeah. But it's just a little extra thing that I give yes. uh, to to, yeah. to Zimbabwean readers, especially because you know I really also want to make shona a global language. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice, like Esperanto. Yeah. <laughs> um, and can you tell me um, the other thing I found fascinating is the naming conventions, mm. where the parents are, are named after their children or. How does that work? Yeah. So you are named after your eldest child. Mm. So I am my Kushi, yeah. mother of Kush. Yeah. Right? To um, who, though? To everybody? To everybody. My yeah. Kush. My yeah. Kush. 
um, because it's, it's considered impolite mm. to call people by their first names. Mm. So we only really use first names in the workplace. Yeah. But in, in a social setting, in family settings, You'd be my whatever. I mean, my our family is 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 pretty unusual because we are Karanga, which is a subset of of Shona, and we tend to use Shona first names a lot. But generally, you're called by the name of your eldest child. Right now, it gets very painful yes. when your eldest child is not there. Yes, it's well, a you don't constant have reminder. If you don't have children, you're, you're okay. not called, yeah. you're just called yeah. by your, yeah. But in, in the Book of Memory, it, it is painful, isn't it? Because it is, because uh, the eldest child in the Book of Memory is, is Givi, gift. And so the parents will forever be called my gift and Baba gift, even though gift is no longer actually alive, mm. you know. Um, but that's how, that's, how we, that's how we name, um, so we didn't really have this... Um, Mrs. So-and-so, mm -hmm. uh, women didn't change their names on marriage and take on their husband's names. It's a, it's, it's a new thing. It's, it came with, uh, with, with colonialism. So how you were known is you had your first name, yeah. and then you had the name of your child, and then you had a nickname. Yeah. And a nickname is one that you earned right. through different things. Yeah. Yeah. And is that how most of the prison guards get their names? Because they, they have all have quite interesting names, don't they? Yeah, the, the, the prison guards would have nicknames given to them by the prisoners. Yeah. 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 You've expressed in the past your irritation with being labelled an African writer or the voice of Zimbabwe. And I wondered where you're at with that now. You know, it's, it's not so much irritation. It's, it's more uh, a discomfort because... And look, I understand it's, it's, it's meant very well. Um, and there's nothing malicious in it. But when you are from a country like mine and you're published at such a high level in the West, there's a danger that you're seen as a representative of your country. Mm -hmm. And I'm really not a representative of my country, especially because my country is a very contested place. Mm -hmm. You know, there are people who think that the government is doing a terrific job, mm -hmm. never mind that it's lost $15 billion in diamond sales. Um, and there are people who think that they're not doing a, a terrific job. So I don't want to, to speak on behalf of mm. Zimbabwe, mm. and I certainly don't want to speak on behalf of Africa. I mean, I, I don't even know where I would begin to speak on behalf yeah. of an entire yeah. continent of 50-something yeah. you know, nations. So I, I'm, I'm wary of that label because it assumes and it gives you the burden of representation. Mm -hmm. And it also makes me a little bit sad that people never actually really ask me the kind of questions you've been asking me about craft, about writing, about the books I've read. It's always the anthropological questions. Yeah, and you, you say know. you often appear on diversity panels and that exactly, kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So it's, it's, it's more a, a desire to get away from that conversation than uh, a denial of my Africanness. Yeah. You know, yeah. Obviously, I, I would never deny that I'm a Zimbabwean writer mm. or an African writer, but it's more that that label comes with certain expectations about what you talk about. Yeah. yeah. There's an interesting character in the book um, called Zenzo who really embraces his identity and exploits his identity as, as an African artist, isn't he? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, I know quite a few people who've really gone to town on this whole art, Afri African artist thing, you know, the... Um, and it's, 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 an easy, it's an easy way out if you really want to take, to take that particular route. And this, the Zenzo in this character uses the whole, you know, I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm an African artist as, as a path to Europe. Mm. Um, but it's always quite interesting to me that the, the most pan-African brothers always end up with the blondes. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how that happens. Hmm. 
maybe. <laughs> well, the same is true of um, Mick Jagger and, you know, various <laughs> other types. So, you know, the other way around. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I'll, I'd like to um, end my questions um, and, uh, to ask you to make a prediction. Uh, Robert Mugabe is 92. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen when he dies? Who says he's going to die? If he, di- if he dies. Well, I don't think he does. <laughs> you know what? I mean, his mom, his mother, Bona, lived to the age of 102. Is that right? So, and I mean, the only certain prediction I can make is that he won't be president in 2023. That's because his second term will have ended. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's okay. the, unless, of course, we amend the constitution right. to give him another term, I can assure you that he won't be president in 2023. Yeah. 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 But beyond that, I'm, I'm not able to make any predictions. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, actually, there is one more thing. Um, Rumour has it you have left your job as, as yes. a lawyer in Geneva. Yes, What's next? I, at the end of the... Uh, in, in December last year, um, just after the staff party, I handed in my letter of resignation. Yeah. Yeah, the wine just wasn't up to standard. <laughs> <laughs> and Geneva. <laughs> um, so I resigned in December and I will be leaving my job at the end of June. Um, I, I just feel that the time has come to, you know, stretch my wings a little bit. My son is settled in school and is happy and I'm going to do, I'm going to do that thing that white kids do after, uni- you know, just before university. I'm going to take a gap year. Oh, nice. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to take a gap year. Because yeah. I didn't, I couldn't take a gap year, you know, because I had brothers and sisters to educate, you know, um, because I, I started working when the economy started tanking and my poor yeah. father couldn't afford to, to send uh, my, my, my siblings to, to university. Mm. So that was my responsibility. Mm. So I've never really had any time for me. Yeah, you know. Um, so this is going to be time for me and time to write and just explore the world and come back to Auckland. I hope. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, we'd love to have you. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, gosh, aren't we lucky to yeah. listen to your wonderful stories? Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. <laughs> Thank you so much. Our 2016 Auckland Writers Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, on SoundCloud or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.